Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin and my guest today is Peter Schiff, the Chief Economist and Global Strategist at Euro-Pacific, in addition to the founder of Schiff Gold and the host of Schiff Radio. Peter is always a crowd favorite, a favorite of mine, always entertaining and informative to speak to. Today we cover a lot of ground, there's tons going on, so I know you're going to enjoy this interview probably as much as I enjoyed hosting it. And as always, right beneath this piece of content, there is a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. If you like my style, I publish every Sunday. I love writing it. I'd love to have you join the team. The link is right beneath this piece of content. Here is Peter Schiff. Let's go. All right, I'm here with Peter Schiff. Peter, welcome back to the show and thanks for making the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Eh? Thanks for having me on. So look, there's a few directions I wanna go today. First, I wanna talk about the debt ceiling. We're starting to see more and more headlines emerge. Uh, debt limit was reached in January. Seems the Fed has enough cash to make payments through to some forecast late May, some early July, but either way, that deadline's looming. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to know your expectation for that <laughs> conflict in Congress when it comes to having to raise the debt ceiling again from $34.1 to whatever comes next. Well, again, remember, the problem is the debt. It's not the ceiling. In fact, the ceiling is actually part of the solution. The problem is they keep raising the ceiling every time we approach it or hit it, as opposed to doing something to stay within the ceiling. That was the whole purpose of the debt ceiling, which actually started back in 1917, uh, coinciding with America's entry into the First World War and the fact that we were borrowing a lot of money. And so Congress wanted to put some kind of cap on how much money the government could borrow. And the problem is, you know, we keep raising the ceiling. And so it's not really achieving its intended purpose, which was to put some limit on how much debt we could accumulate. But every time we get to the ceiling, though, we just get all this political theater um, where the Republicans pretend they actually want to cut spending, mm -hmm. but they don't actually propose any significant spending cuts. And of course, the Democrats don't want to cut any spending. Nobody wants to raise taxes, at least not on the middle class, which is where all the money is. And so the debt ceiling always gets raised. This is all political posturing. This is throwing meat to your base. But at the end of the day, the politicians will come together and once again do the wrong thing and raise the debt ceiling in contrast to what they claim. This is not about paying our bills. If we were going to pay our bills, we would pay them and not raise the debt ceiling. This is about continuing to not pay our bills. Instead of paying our bills, we borrow the money and we can't continue to avoid paying our bills unless we raise the debt ceiling. So that's what it's about. It's not about doing the responsible thing. It's about continuing to do the reckless and irresponsible thing. And so having heard you say that, it, it kind of affirms how I feel about this. We're going to see a ton, a tsunami of headlines about debt ceiling debates, a bunch of conflict within the uh, federal government. But my thought is it doesn't matter because we know what the outcome is going to be. It'll be the same outcome that it's always been when we hit that limit. We raise and move forward. So is it all just media theater, political theater as we lead up to this? And there's yeah, really only one said. outcome that, yeah, okay. The reason, the reason we've got $32 trillion in debt is because we keep raising the debt ceiling. Yeah. And 
you know, the Democrats now, since they're the ones that want a clean raise and the Republicans are, you know, pretending that that they want to do something. But of course, they had a chance to do something when Trump was president and they had the House and the Senate and they just voted to raise the debt ceiling back then when they actually could have maybe done something and they didn't take advantage of the opportunity. So now it's all BS that they're you know, claiming they want to do something now uh, when they know they have the, a president of the opposite party. This was not that this is not the time. The time to do something was four years ago, you know, and and and, and they uh, they did nothing. But the Democrats are saying, hey, you know, if we don't raise this debt ceiling, it's a disaster. Interest rates are going to rise. Everybody's going to suffer. That is what's going to happen if we do raise the debt ceiling. See, all the bad things that they say are going to happen if we don't raise it are going to happen because we have been raising it. The fact that we've keep we keep raising the ceiling guarantees a debt crisis because the only thing that's going to put a stop to the debt is a crisis. And so we've chosen to have a crisis on the market's terms instead of trying to manage something less horrific on our own terms. And would you expect, I mean, I think back to previous debt ceiling debates, like 2011 was probably the most substantial political gridlock. That's when the U.S. credit rating got downgraded from AAA by standard of fours. And the S&P crashed about 15% in response to that conflict. Would you expect something as volatile this spring because the Republicans have a narrow majority, got a Democrat, a Democrat president? What do you think? No, first of all, I don't expect any more downgrades. S&P got punished for that downgrade. I think they got targeted. I get got, got fined. You know, so I, I don't think anyone's ever going to downgrade U.S. Treasury debt again. But if there was an honest rating on it, it would be junk. Because there's no way that the U.S. government is going to repay its debts in real money, right? That's what counts. Sure, we can run the presses and give everybody a bunch of paper. But the question is, what will the money be worth when the bondholders receive it? Mm -hmm. And I think it'll be worth very little. I mean, inflation is just getting started. We have guaranteed that we're going to destroy the value of our currency because we refuse to rein in these debts. So... Our creditors may be paid, but it's going to be a hollow payment when there's very little they can actually buy with the money they get paid in. Now, let me ask you a similar question about the same topic. What is the alternative? Say some uh, you know, political white horse, white knight rides into the White House and they decide to do the right thing. Is there an avenue, aside from just raising the debt ceiling, that involves some kind of financial austerity that is not absolute political suicide. Like, is there a separate path, another path? Not, not really. Not really. I think our leaders have to be willing to risk their own reelections to do the right thing, because we really have to bring the budget into balance. And that would require a cut of about 30 percent from the government right now, this year and every single year going forward. Yeah. Um, and basically, though, if you look at where interest rates are, and what the interest on the national debt is likely to be at the end of next year, we really need to cut government spending by about 50% in order to balance the budget. That shows you how out of whack it is and how far we're living beyond our means. Um, nobody is willing to cut the budget at all, let alone by 50%. So, you know, there is no political way out of this. It's just not going to happen. So the reality is inflation is what's going to happen. Right? The, the, the money is going to lose a lot of value. The key is going to be to prevent hyperinflation. That's going to be the key, to prevent the dollar from losing all of its value. 
<laughs> so people are going to lose the value of government benefits. So let's say you're getting Social Security. The real value of those benefits at a minimum is going to be cut in half. You know, that, that's reality. But the worst case would be if the value of your Social Security benefits go down by 90% or 99%. Right? Mm -hmm. So they're basically worthless because the currency is completely destroyed. So that's the outcome that we have to prevent. But I don't think there's any political chance that we're going to do the right thing. I mean, what I would do personally is I, I, would, I would give a big haircut to everybody, including the bondholders. I, I would not pay the treasuries off 100% on the dollar. I, you know, we'd have to restructure because everybody has to participate in the pain, including people who bought U.S. treasuries. And if that means U.S. treasuries are, are downgraded, well, that's what it means. You know, I don't, it doesn't matter. Uh, because the government can't pay. Because if we're going to cut Social Security, if we're going to cut Medicare, if we're going to cut government pensions, if we're going to ask middle-class Americans to take a big haircut, we have to ask wealthy investors, especially, you know, who own U.S. Treasuries to take a haircut too. You know, that's, you know, they took a risk. They loaned money to the U.S. government. The U.S. government was clearly bankrupt. You know, <laughs> they, you know, they, 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 you know, they, they deserve what they get. Okay. And now when you, when you speak about the value of these, these benefit packages decreasing by 90%, you're really just talking about the value, the power, the purchasing power of the dollar decreasing by that amount, correct? Yes. And that's what I like to avoid. And, and I would like to see Social Security benefits eliminated or cut strategically. For example, I shouldn't get any Social Security. Right? Warren Buffett shouldn't get any Social Security, right? So there's some people that should lose 100% of their benefits, Okay. Um, and, and that would make it possible for other people to retain more of their benefits. It needs to be means tested based on assets, based on income. And I know a lot of people don't like that, but that's the reality. But I think going forward, we need to get rid of the program entirely. I mean, the government never should have gotten involved in this. It's unconstitutional. It's bad economics. It's an intergenerational Ponzi scheme. The government has no legal authority to be running it. So we need to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. I understand that, unfortunately, now you have a lot of Americans that completely depend on it. And that's unfortunate. Had it not been for government, uh, had they not been taxed so much uh, while they were working, they could have saved for their own retirement. But they didn't do that. And instead, they've been betting on a government Ponzi scheme. And so I understand that there's going to be some people that unfortunately need to get this welfare, which is really what it is. Like a lot of people think, well, I paid into Social Security. Nobody paid into anything. You just paid taxes and the government spent the money. The government lied to everybody. Everybody was swindled by the government. You know, so, you know, people paid into Bernie Madoff. That didn't mean they were entitled to get their money back. So people who paid into Social Security are no more entitled than the people who paid into Bernie Madoff. They got conned. It's just that this time, the con men were the U.S. government. But I get it. I want to try to figure out how to take care of the people who really need it. But for the future generations, we got to get rid of it completely. But, you know, politicians don't want to talk about that. But what's going to end up happening, because we're not going to do it our my way, because no politician has the guts to cut Social Security for anybody, even for Warren Buffett, right? We're going to wipe it out through inflation. And that means that the people who need Social Security are going to have the same reduction in their benefits as guys like Warren Buffett who don't need it at all. So the way it's going to end up being done is not going to be equitable at all. Everybody is going to suffer the same, whether you're a billionaire or you're, you know, you're barely making ends meet. I would rather it not happen that way, but unfortunately, that's the way it's going to go down. And, and talk to me about trigger points leading towards that path, because that's a it's a I don't know it's a pretty sensational outlook for the future of the U.S. dollar, right? To be def 
to be inflated to that extent. Um, you know, when I think about the pension system, the, the bigger threat that comes to my mind, you tell me what you think about this, is just a lack of funding, right? We've got more people every day drawing on a system that less people are funding. And, you know, this upside down pyramid can only sustain for so long in theory, but we're pretty good at kicking cans down the road. So what is the bigger threat to pensions at this point? Well, first of all, the biggest threat is that the pensions aren't even pensions, right? It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Ponzi. It's not a pension. If it was a pension, it would be funded. Now, some pensions are underfunded and there's problems with those. But Social Security isn't funded at all. It's not like it's underfunded. It doesn't have any funding. Its funding is future taxpayers. Right. So right. it's not like there's any income that's being generated on investments that were made with money no, on a normal pension. If I pay into a pension, when I retire, I'm getting my own money back, plus the, the income that's been earned uh, through investments of my money that I've been putting in over the years. Well, we, we, when somebody gets money from Social Security, they're not getting back their own money. Their own money was spent you know, a long time ago. They're getting back the new money that somebody else puts in. And the only chance that new guy has of getting his money is if the government finds somebody in the future to put that money in, right? So it's a whole Ponzi scheme, but it can't work. You know, you can look at the nature of the Ponzi. When it first started out, there were like 50 people paying taxes for every one person that was collecting a benefit. So, okay, it worked. Now it's more like two to one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pretty soon it'll be one to one, right? It can't work. You, you can't, uh, one person can't support himself and an entirely other an additional person. The, the numbers just don't make it. And so it's all going to be paid for by printing money, which just destroys the value of everybody's money, not just the Social Security money. When the government wipes out Social Security benefits through inflation, it wipes out everything. All dollars lose value. Doesn't matter where they are, even if they're stuffed under your mattress, right? They're all going to lose. Talk to me about the, in that scenario, what is the role of the US dollar as the reserve currency of the world? And, you know, because everything's relative. So if US dollars are being inflated into oblivion relative to what are the currencies and how do they perform? Yeah, well, the US dollar has done uh, substantial damage to the global economy because it was the reserve. I mean, we have basically exported our inflation uh, all around the world, and the world has suffered from this uh, relationship. America has gained. Uh, at, at the expense of everybody else. And, you know, it's not that everybody has suffered equally. I think the emerging markets have, have, have borne uh, the lion's share of the burden of subsidizing uh, American profligacy. But we've basically just shot ourselves in the foot, you know, to accelerate the process by weaponizing the dollar. I think um, uh, President Biden put the nail in that coffin uh, when he put those sanctions on Russia. And so everything has now been accelerated. Um, in the long run, this is going to be good for the United States. I mean, the sooner we, you know, we, we lose this privilege, the, the quicker we can start, you know, creating a viable economy because we were going to lose it eventually. Certainly for the rest of the world, it's better, right? The, the, the sooner they can stop subsidizing America, the better because America's loss is going to be the world's gain. When the dollar crashes and it's, it will crash, that means other currencies are rising. Now, what does that mean? That means as Americans get poorer, everybody else gets richer. And so Americans consume less and everybody else consumes more. All the stuff that Americans used to buy will be too expensive for Americans to afford. But that stuff is still going to be here. The factories aren't going to start producing it just because Americans stopped consuming it. So what's going to happen is people in other countries are going to get to buy what the Americans can no longer afford. See, they're not buying it right now because the Americans are outbidding them. 
So all this is going to change, and it's you know a big loss for the U.S. and a gain for the rest of the world. Broadly speaking, is that not a massively deflationary event if the world's largest consumer is dramatically compromised? No, because other consumers are going to pick up that slack. Remember, it's just a transfer of consumption. Americans consume less, the Chinese consume more, right? Simple as that. Right? So net consumption isn't going down. It's just where does the consumption take place? Who sure. gets to do the consuming? Right? Because if Americans want to consume, they're going to have to pay much higher prices to do it. That's why Americans are going to consume so much less, because they're not going to have the money. Right? They're not going to have the purchasing power to do it. Well, can I walk me through your thoughts on the de-dollarization trend that mainstream media is now suddenly covering? And we've been watching this trend for a while. You know, central banks dumping dollars, buying gold. That's one um, application we've seen. And, and now suddenly both CNN and Fox are talking about de-dollarization and the future of the, of the U.S. dollar. So what's your take, broad strokes, on, on the de-dollarization of key economies around the world? Well, I don't think anybody's really dumping dollars yet. I think they're slowly divesting. I don't think it's a, it's a rush for the exit yet. I think that's ultimately going to happen. And when that does happen, the dollar's exchange rate is going to be deteriorating at a far more rapid pace. I mean, so far, the decline from the peak of around 115 to where we are now, around 101, that's been very slow and steady and orderly. And I think that it will continue to be slow and steady maybe until the dollar index gets around 80 or maybe 70. But once it cracks below that level, I expect the pace to really accelerate and potentially into a, you know, an outright crash uh, in the dollar. Um, but the fact that so many in the media are now waking up to this and, and covering it, I mean, it really must be happening now that it's even being talked about. I mean, I've been talking about it for a long time that it was inevitable that it was an inevitability this this would happen. Uh, but nobody really talked about it. They just thought that it was inevitable that the dollar would be the reserve currency indefinitely. Now you're finally starting to see some acknowledgement that that might not be the case. But I still don't think the mainstream really understands the significance of what this means and how life in America will change so profoundly if the dollars or when the dollars reserve currency status is lost. Well, walk me through some of the biggest implications for everyday consumers um, and your average investor, Peter. Well, first for consumers, the reason that our uh, consumption-based economy works is because of the dollar status. You know, we're able to export dollars and import real goods. We have a trillion dollar a year trade deficit. And we pay for all that merchandise just by printing money. So we don't have to expend any resources, uh, yet we can import a trillion dollars worth of goods that the rest of the world uh, consume considerable researches, resources producing. So the first thing that's going to happen is we're not going to be able to run these trade deficits anymore. Our trade is going to have to be brought into balance. And that means basically, let's say a trillion dollars worth of merchandise every year disappears from our shelves. And there's really nothing to replace it with. So what's left is just going to be that much more expensive because not that you know, many people will be able to buy what's there, right? So your prices have to go way up because the supply of goods has gone way down. Also, credit is going to become far less uh, plentiful because 
the reverse of this, right? We've been able to send out these dollars that we just create out of thin air and get a trillion dollars a year worth of goods that are produced in factories by real workers, right? And then we give them these dollars. And then what do the Chinese or everybody else do with those dollars? They lend them back to us, right? They buy mortgage-backed securities. They buy securitized credit card debt or all these uh, debt instruments that are created. They, they buy them. So they supply us with goods and then they loan us the money right back after they, after they get paid. And so what's going to happen is we're not going to get the goods anymore, but we're also not going to get the credit. And so credit, interest, consumer credit rates are going to skyrocket. So not only are things going to be much more expensive because we no longer have the products, but you're not going to be able to put them on a credit card. You're going to have to buy the products and pay for them with cash. Forget about this buy now, pay later crap. That's over. You got to buy now and pay now. And you got to pay three, four, five times what you used to pay. And of course, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. There's going to be massive unemployment initially when the dollar loses its reserve currency status because that reserve status has supported this consumer economy that is really just a gigantic distribution center where we import goods from the rest of the world and then we distribute it uh, throughout the country. And you have all these stores that people go to to buy all this imported stuff that has been you know, distributed. So it's, it's all logistics and shipping and retail. But when you take away the underlying products that all this service sector economy is based on, then everything that was built on top crashes down. So if you don't have any more merchandise on the shelves at Walmart, you don't need all these Walmarts anymore. There's too many of them. We don't, we've got nothing to put on the shelves. We don't need all the people that work there. We don't need all the people that were delivering the goods. We don't need all, you know, all, all this stuff collapses when you pull out the bottom, which is the stuff, right? And so unemployment is going to be widespread. You know, we're going to have to rebuild a legitimate economy that is self-sufficient, meaning that if we want to consume, we got to produce. If we want to borrow, somebody else in America has to save. We can't rely on the world's manufacturing capacity, and we can't rely on the world's savings. We have to rely on ourselves, like we did in the 1940s, the 1950s, 1960s, or go further back when we were a, an exporting nation, when we were a creditor nation. We have to get back to what where we were, but we can't get back there with today's level of government. We need a dramatic reduction in the size and scope of our government. We need lower taxes. We need fewer regulations. But in order to make that possible, we need massive cuts in government spending. Now, again, if we don't get that, we just get inflation that wipes everything out, and then we're going to have to start all over again. Uh, but it's going to be very difficult to start over again, especially given the way the political winds have been blowing, given how dumbed down the electorate is. It's very scary uh, to be in this situation because America may end up going all in on socialism. I mean, we've been you know, going down that road. Uh, to serfdom for a long time, and we may finally get there, you know, and, and, and just blame all this on freedom and capitalism and just say the solution is the government has complete control over the U.S. economy. And, you know, then, you know, then we're Cuba, you know, or Soviet Union or something like that. I mean, so it's, it's, it's very scary where, where this might, may eventually head. And do you have any thoughts on, on probabilities there? I mean, I'm, I want to ask you, like, what's your long-term outlook think in 20 years, are you, are you bullish on America? But I mean, when I hear you say things like, we're going to need to rebuild, that sounds optimistic to me. 
And it sounds like, you know, kind of the, the, the century cycles we see in America from the American yeah, Revolution. We're going to need to rebuild. Whether we actually do that is, sure. is another question. Because okay. in order to rebuild, we need to have a free market because the government's not going to rebuild anything. So if the government takes over the rebuilding, then we're going nowhere. Right. Um, the only successful path is free market capitalism. So that means we have to acknowledge that the problems were caused by government. You know, it's a tough uh, pill to swallow, you know, for our leaders. <laughs> uh, now, obviously, we, get, we need all new leaders, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. You know, I, I, I want to be hopeful that when push comes to shove, you know, in the middle of a crisis, we'll do the right thing. We certainly won't do the right thing to avoid the crisis. That's never going to happen. It's going right. to take a crisis to potentially uh, cause the right thing to be done. You know, so we'll have to see. We're going to have to take our chances. But yeah. the one thing I know is that my investment strategy is going to do extremely well. And so at the point this happens, you know, I'll, I'll be a lot wealthier than I am today. I'll, I'll, I'll have a lot more money and maybe I'll be in a better position to help uh, you know, get the country to move in the right direction. And I, you know, and, you know, and I may be willing to spend a considerable amount of that money uh, to do that. Okay, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull on that thread <laughs> in a second because that that's uh, I'm not gonna let that go. You know, I, I agree with you. You know, what we need is a return to free market capitalism, but the global trends go in the other direction, isn't it? More centralization, central bank issued digital currencies. I mean, these are the the opposites of what you're claiming that we need and and definitely seems to complement the acceleration of i guess a socialist state in the us but i mean this is global right i mean every major economy is moving towards more top-down centralization would you agree with that yeah the bigger economies certainly i mean that is uh the direction they're headed and again they're beholden to voters and so they have to preserve this illusion in order to get reelected. Okay. um but you know when we have a crisis, a lot of things will change. I mean, you can look at other countries. I always like to look at New Zealand as an example. It's been a long time, but, you know, they had a real crisis in the 1980s. Uh, they basically bankrupted themselves pursuing a, a socialist path. And, of course, they were, were you know, were the poster uh, boys for the middle, middle way. I mean, if you look at how the left was writing about New Zealand, in the 70s and 80s, I mean, they were great, right? They were, you know, they were like Sweden, right? Or better. They were like, this was government and capitalism coming together. Well, it, it bankrupted the country. But if you look at the economic reforms that were made under Roger Douglas, and, and, and they came from the left, I mean, significant free market reforms that led to a complete resurgence of that economy, um, you know, in the 90s and 2000s. I mean, so, you know, and the, the political party that decided to go towards free market capitalism and away from government, it was the same party that led them in the other direction in the first place. Interesting. Uh, now, so will, will the, the Democratic Party, will, will they have that kind of epiphany? Will they have that kind of honesty and integrity and, and do what happened in New Zealand? Well, you know, I think the politicians kind of had their backs to the wall and it was under those severe circumstances that they made those decisions. Um, and it may be more difficult for U.S. politicians to do the same thing, but we'll see. But that's what's going to have to happen in order to get out of this mess. Now, the, the good news is that we've had a lot of technological investments 
over the years. And, and even recently, you can see what's going on with AI and, and the promise that, that that might bring. And so to the extent that we are more efficient, we have better tools, uh, it'll make it easier for the free market to get us out of this hole and to rebuild a, a viable, self-sustaining economy again. But the, the path from here to there is, is very bumpy. And you know, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money along the way. If gold hits $4,000, will you make a run for president? <laughs> well, I think gold is going a lot higher than $4,000. Um, and, and I think it probably needs to be a lot higher um, for there to be the type of um, economic environment that would make such a candidacy, you know, kind of feasible as a, as a reality. But if it's not me, I mean, somebody else, uh, I'm not the only one that understands this. I mean, I'm not the only free market, you know, Austrian economist out there, right? I mean, we're just in the minority, uh, but we're there, right? Mm. And so it's going to take that kind of environment, I think, runaway inflation, I mean, just a real currency crisis and a real disaster to wake people up and to get the electorate to the point where they, 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 they recognize what needs to be changed and that just more empty promises from government. Government checks aren't going to matter if those checks don't buy anything. So some politician promises, oh, we're going to give you more money. I mean, at some point, the voters are going to realize it doesn't matter how much I have. I still can't buy anything. Yeah. Are you considering uh, a presidential run at some point in your career, Peter? Ah, oh, who knows? I mean, as like I said, I'm 60 right now, so we'll see. You're young. You I got, mean, <laughs> you know, relative to. But a, you know, it's not it's not easy. You know, I, I I I try to run as an outsider for the U.S. Senate. It's hard. It's hard to do it. It's hard to finance it. It's hard to raise money. They really stack the deck against uh, outsiders. I mean, Donald Trump was amazing. Donald Trump pulled it off. I mean, it's very very rare to see something like that happen. A guy never run for office. Yeah. Uh, businessman, not a politician. And he started at the top, he ran for president, and he won, right? So, I mean, that, so it can happen. Yeah. Um, but then, then, of course, obviously, there was a lot of uh, forces. The political establishment really didn't like that. They didn't like some outsider coming in, you know, mm -hmm. and, and getting in on their action. Um, so it's, 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 it's not easy to do. Uh, and look how hard it is for the third parties. I mean, look, at there's been plenty, plenty of good libertarian candidates to come around and you know it probably wouldn't be hard for me to get that nomination but the problem yeah. is you get that nomination you don't go anywhere right because you don't get invited to participate in the presidential debates the media doesn't cover your campaign right so the two-party system really has a stranglehold on, on the election process which is unfortunate uh because it really doesn't matter at the end of the day whether you put the republican or the democrat because they're Republicans or republicrats they're all kind of part of the same club uh nobody is really an outsider that that's getting in there. I mean, the closest thing you got now in uh, the Republicans is Larry Elder has announced that he's going to run for office. Now, I don't think he has a chance of getting the nomination, but he's certainly by far the best candidate in the race. He's the candidate that's the closest to my thinking okay. on uh, on economics. He's a he's a smart guy. You know, I, I I used to listen to Larry Elder before anybody listened to me. I used to you know I used to drive around in my car in Los Angeles and sometimes. Because I would listen to Larry Elder on my way home from work or whatever. And sometimes I'd get to where I was going, but I would sit in my car and keep listening to Larry Elder because he, he was saying some stuff. I wanted to hear it. So I stayed in my car so I could continue, even though I had gotten home, I didn't get out of the car. So he's a good guy, you know, 
And uh, he's co-hosted. You know, I used to have him sometimes when I did the Peter Schiff show when I wasn't around. Larry Elder, you know, guest host for me. Hmm. Okay. Walk me through your portfolio right now, Peter. I mean, you, you mentioned you're set up to make a lot of money as this situation plays out. Walk me through where the cash is allocated. Yeah. You know, I was reading just an article today. Uh, Miller was talking about his highest conviction trade, the trade that he's most confident is going to work out. And that's short the dollar. And I agree. I mean, my entire investment thesis for 20 years really has been get out of the dollar. I mean, I was very early in understanding ultimately where the dollar was headed. So if I'm right and the dollar does lose this status and it collapses, whether it crashes, you know, by 90 percent or more or just gets cut in half. I am positioned to make a lot of dollars, you know, so I'll have a lot more of them. Of course, they won't be worth as much, but I'll have hopefully enough of them that, you know, the, the quantity will compensate for the quality. But okay. I own all these foreign assets and actually they're not really dollars. What I own is assets in foreign countries. We can just price them in dollars. And as the dollar loses value, the price in dollars goes way up. But the underlying assets are still uh, in foreign currencies or they're just they represent the assets of the businesses. But I also yeah. own stock in a lot of companies that are in areas that will benefit a lot from inflation, you know, raw materials, natural resources. And of course, I have huge over concentration personally in gold and silver mining stocks. And a lot of these stocks, I think, are going to go up not only 10x, some of them 50 or 100x. And I have sizable positions in these stocks, seven figure positions. So, you know, you 50x those, right? I mean, that's, you know, so I, I'm in a position, I think, to make a lot of money on this short dollar trade um, as, it, as it emerges. I think most people are on the wrong side of this trade. They just think the dollar is going to reign supreme indefinitely. They just don't see any viable challengers to the dollar's throne. Uh, and in a way, I agree. I don't think the euro or the yen or the RMB or the pound or any of these currencies is going to replace the dollar. I think gold is going to replace the dollar. I mean, the dollar replaced gold. We're just going to go back to the way it was. And in fact, the only reason that the dollar became the reserve currency was because it was not only backed by gold, but redeemable in gold. The dollar was as good as gold, mm -hmm. right? And so, but for gold, the dollar wouldn't have been the reserve currency. And it was only the reserve currency also because we were the world's biggest creditor nation. We had the largest trade surpluses. Today, it's the opposite. World's biggest debtor nation. In fact, we owe more than all the other debtor nations of the world combined. Massive mm -hmm. trade deficit. And the dollar's backed by nothing. And we keep on printing them. We have multi-trillion dollar budget deficits as far as the eye can see. Completely reckless and irresponsible politicians. No discipline whatsoever. Massive inflation. There's no way that the dollar could qualify for the reserve currency. I mean, if it wasn't the reserve currency now, it never would qualify. But the weaponization of the dollar has now accelerated that trend. And, you know, it, it, it's over, right? It's already happening. It's just that so many people are still blind to what's obvious. Mm. Look, Peter, I want to thank you for coming back on the show and spending some time with myself and my audience. And um, I'll make sure to include links to all of your content and platforms beneath this interview. But thanks again for coming back on. Yeah, that's uh, great. I, I appreciate that. People should definitely try to follow me on social media, listen to my podcast. And if you want to invest in my strategies, if you want to invest with me, uh, my mutual funds are out there. The Euro Pacific funds are on 
platforms. You can go directly to our website at europac.com, get information on the mutual funds, buy the mutual funds. You can also talk to the representatives about setting up a separately managed account for my team and I to manage from our uh, uh, registered advisory firm. Uh, because I want as many Americans uh, to make money off this as possible. I don't want to, you know, just make money personally. I want to help as many Americans as possible because when everything crashes, the more Americans that don't go broke, the better, right? It's kind of like if a ship sinks and you're on that same ship and you're sinking, you're not going to be of any help to the survivors, right? You want to be on a lifeboat so that then you can help pull those survivors out of the water. So I want to get as many of my fellow Americans into this lifeboat as possible. That way we can make a bigger difference in the future in moving the, the country in the right direction. I like it. The Europac lifeboat. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. I appreciate it. Take care. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.